this vast army appeared outside the walls with their mangonels, with their trebuchets, with what they called their black oxen catapults, and start laying siege. It's very bloody, it lasts for several weeks, but eventually the Mamluks prevail and they break through, just as they had done at Tripoli. And the end is nigh. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Morning, Jamie. Hi, Tom. We're going to do the last stand of the Crusaders today. The big one. Uh, In 1291, the Crusaders were made famous by a last stand in their coastal redoubt of Acre, one of the remaining and certainly the most important enclaves of the Franks in the Holy Land. It marked the end of almost 200 years of Christian intervention in Palestine. The first crusade in which Jerusalem was seized occurred in 1099. What followed was a period of trade, skirmish, war and legend. From the Templars to the True Cross, this is the story of that time. Jamie, do you want to walk us through Acre, through the territory today? Yeah, why not, Tom? It, it might give us a flavour of the ground that was battled over in those last moments of the Crusader Empire. If you go there today, Tom, you'll find a lot of ghosts and a great deal of history. Within an area of land that is bounded by a wall, 500 yards by 500 yards, this rather small space, this rather unprepossessing territory, a huge amount of battle, action and legend occurred. If you go underground, you'll find the hospitaller sewage system running down to the sea with pinpricks of light above that were the public latrines. If you go down the Templar Tunnel, you'll find the route by which the Templar treasure was smuggled out of the Lion Fortress, the temple, the night before it fell to the Mameluk Sultan and his shock troops. Above ground, you find the old buildings of the Hospitaller Knights of St. John, their compound with their refectory, their dormitories, their great hall, their storerooms. At the south of the harbour front, overlooking the sea, is the 80-foot Venetian tower still there and abandoned. A few hundred yards to the north is the empty space on which the temple, the lion fortress of the Templars once stood, before it collapsed in the final dramatic stages. You stand on the waterfront and look out onto the water and see where the elderly patriarch of Jerusalem drowned when the skiff carrying him capsized because it was overburdened with too many refugees scrambling to get away as the Muslims broke through the gates and breached the walls. And out on the breakwater, at an angle these days, is the Tower of Flies, the lighthouse of the Crusaders, and the last sight that so many of them saw as they abandoned and fled the Holy Land for the last time. So that might give some picture of what it is like 
today and the ruins that are still standing. Okay, um, but Acre in 1291, what was that like? It was a bustling, thriving place, and it was essentially all that was left of the great kingdom of Jerusalem, the Crusader kingdom. They had been forced back to the coast, and that was really their largest and key redoubt. And there was a lot of trade going on. You had ships from Venice, from Genoa, from Alexandria, from all around the Mediterranean turning up there. They had to get into the cantina. They had to get through the breakwater into the harbour. And there was a chain across. They paid their taxes. There was a Fonda great market where in which a lot of trade was done. There were camel trains coming in the whole time. And it was a bustling place of up to 25,000 people in this tiny space. It was full of brothels, of taverns, of churches. It had St. Anthony's Church there, the portico of which eventually was dragged away, dismantled and taken away by the Mameluk Sultan to front a mosque in Cairo. And it had a lot of defences. You have a map there of the walls of the, the, the town, and you can see how the Crusaders had invested a great deal of money in building up the ramparts, two lines of walls. At the corner of the walls, there were three large towers. The frontal one was the Barbican, the Tower of King Hugh. Behind that was the great Tower of King Henry II of England. And behind that was the Accursed Tower. So there were many points that were defended. And within the town, there were the auberges, the, the houses of the military orders. You had the Teutonic Knights, you had the Templars, and you had the Hospitaller Knights of St. John, as well as the other knights from different countries in Europe, and a lot of merchants. So they were all there jostling for position, jostling for trade, getting money in. But it wasn't looking good for them. As they looked out across the Bay of Acre, they could see Haifa on the other side uh, that was already in Mameluk hands. Uh, in 1189, two years before, the Mamluk Sultan, uh, Kalawun, had taken the city of Tripoli. So a lot of the territory that had once been owned by the Crusaders was now in Muslim hands, and they would have been frightened. And here is a reading from Jamie's book set in the time of the Crusades, Perdition. Unlike John of Villiers, the Sultan of Egypt was less concerned for the welfare of the people of Acre. Mounted on his horse, he toured the front in a travelling cavalcade of generals and bodyguards, pausing to survey the ruin of the walls and privately exult in the progress of destruction. It had been two days since the mighty King Henry Tower had ceased to stand and its stunted relic was taken. Further attacks had consolidated the gains pushed back the Latins to the innermost ramparts and carried his forces to the brink of success. From every point, the banners and standards of his regiments could be spied crowning the shattered battlements and marking the line of their advance. A noble and heroic scene. Kurds, Turkomans, Arabs and Africans all were present to bear witness and heed his call. He would savour and forever remember the moment. All hail to the Sultan! Praise be the conqueror, Ashraf. 
Okay, so the storm clouds were gathering on, and the focus of all this is Acre. This is just it's just more than five hundred by five hundred yards, a small space, a very small space. But then we always have from Bible images and from movies that that we're talking a vast expanse of territory. We're not. The Crusader Kingdom really ran for about 180 miles north to south along the coast. And by that stage, Outremer, the kingdom of the Crusaders in the Levant, was only 10 miles deep. And of course, there was trade, but it, it was really a kingdom that was under siege. Uh, of course, there was money being made. The uh, hospital knights of St. John didn't just make money from looking after pilgrims. They also made money from having sugarcane plantations out on the plain beyond Acre. So they were making a lot of money providing sugar for the courts and tables of of Europe. Um, the Templars were still major figures in banking and shipping. So they were making money, but they were clinging on because their raison d'etre by that stage had gone. There, there were no pilgrims to God anymore. There was no crusade to mount, and they weren't guarding the holy sites. Yeah, and what surprised me it was the the deal that they had with the Mongols, that they had a sort of alliance in the past and that no longer were the Mongols pressuring the Muslim countries from the east. Well, the Crusaders, certainly in Antioch and elsewhere, were desperately trying to find anyone who could shore up their position because they were desperately under threat throughout the 13th century leading up to that final blitz of 1291. So they were sending envoys out to the Mongols, trying to get them to intervene, to mount diversionary raids, and the Mongols decided not to get involved. Excellent. Well, why don't we get into the Crusades and start with the first crusade, 1099. What happened there? Well, by 1099, Pope Urban II had called for a crusade. The leaders of Constantinople had called for a crusade because the Seljuk Turks had taken over Jerusalem from the Egyptians and were pretty hardcore. And we always think of the Muslim empire, that it was somehow homogenous, that it was somehow incredibly strong. But actually, throughout the 200 years of the Crusaders, you had different dynasties, different groups jostling for position. You had the Fatimids, the Seljuks, the Ayyubids. And it was only Saladin later on in the 12th century that, that brought things together, that united Egypt and Syria and became a, a very potent force and took on the Crusaders. Okay, yeah. Um, but to come back to the First Crusade, this was the Crusade of Norman barons. The aim was what? Well, it's, it's always been called the Crusade of the Nobles or the Crusade of the Barons. The aim was to go and capture Jerusalem, to win back the holy sites. It's worth remembering that throughout the first part of the millennium before, that area of the world had been under Christian control, had been controlled from Constantinople. You had sort of major uh, Roman emperors based in Constantinople. You had Constantine who founded it 
in the 320s. You had um, Justinian in the 6th century. You had Heraclius in the 7th century. And these were very powerful men who created this kingdom, this Eastern kingdom, Christian kingdom. There were huge numbers of pilgrims, huge numbers of hermits and uh, complete religious nuts. I mean, you're talking uh, cranks, um, weirds with beards. I mean, it was basically Glastonbury times 100. <laughs> um, yeah. And starlights and ascetics who'd sit on pillars and preach or sit there for 37 years in the case of St. Simeon. There was this sort of urge to recapture those glory days and to win back the holy sites and cleanse them of what were seen as unclean, barbaric Muslims who had no right to be there in the eyes of the Catholic Church and in, in the eyes of the nobles of Northern Europe. And so a warlike band, mostly of Norman barons, people like Duke Robert of Normandy, the Count of Flanders, uh, the barons and counts of Toulouse, uh, they all headed off there. They started with about 23,000, 25,000 men, a host of knights. By the time they reached the Holy Land, there were only about 13,000 of them left. But they marched inland. They got to what is called the Mount of Joy, where they looked down upon the city of Jerusalem. And you can still stand there today, and it's a, it's a very awe-inspiring sight. They felt they were following the call of God. They felt that they were doing the right and religious thing. They walked in penance around the city walls in bare feet, and eventually they broke through. They broke through the Western Gate and through the Northern Gate, the Western Gate being called the Pilgrim Gate or the Jaffa Gate, and slaughter ensued. They didn't take any prisoners. They thought they were cleansing the city and they slaughtered everyone. And there, there are descriptions of uh, King David Street leading from the uh, Western Gate, the Pilgrim Gate, uh, being knee deep in blood. And the Muslims retreated onto Temple Mount and they were absolutely butchered there. And there are also accounts of children being roasted alive and, and eaten. Did you, did you say knee deep in mud or blood? Blood. Oh, right. Um, it sounded like mud. <laughs> Blood's a lot worse. <laughs> it was far worse. It was very gory. And there are also descriptions of them uh, walking to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, leaving bloody footprints through the church. I mean, they were mired in blood. They used the places in Jerusalem, the taverns, to stable their horses. They had won. They created the Kingdom of Jerusalem. They, from that time onwards, uh, basically elected their first kings, and those kings continued, uh, although they were pushed out of Jerusalem by Saladin in the late 12th century, uh, they continued to call themselves the kings of Jerusalem. And, and ultimately, even when they were pushed back to the coast, they called themselves kings of Jerusalem. Okay, so we come on into the 12th century now. They have Jerusalem, and we have then the rise of the military orders. People will be familiar with some of these names, Templar, Hospitaller, Teutonic. 
What about them? Who are these people? They grew out of a serious need to protect pilgrims and provide a path for pilgrims to the holy sites of Jerusalem. By the time the First Crusade was out of the way, there started to be a massive building program, not just in Jerusalem, but large fortresses around the Holy Land. There's essentially a century before Saladin comes on the scene and takes back Jerusalem. So you've got a decades in which fortresses like Crack de Chevalier for the Hospitallers or Markab or the castle at Tortosa, all these huge fortresses are built. And the military orders appear in order to service the need of guarding pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, just as there was a need to guard pilgrims, look after pilgrims in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century AD. So first of all, you get the hospitaller knights who are there to provide hospices and hospitals and medical care for the pilgrims that are on their way. They then get a military arm that is very combative, like the Templars. The Templars appear in 1119, and they are there basically to guard pilgrims and also to continue a holy war, guard the boundaries and the borders of this hard-won, hard-fought-for kingdom of Jerusalem. And the, and the kingdom, it's a couple of hundred miles from north to south and about 10 miles deep, is that? Well, there were different um, principalities, different colonies of crusaders. So you have Godfrey of Boulogne, one of the barons, taking on Jerusalem as its king at the start of the First Crusade, and then that house of Boulogne continuing until um, the sort of start of the um, 12th century. So they're there for quite a while. And so they see these huge changes and, and the development of the Kingdom of Jerusalem as a key trading center. I think when people look at the Holy Land over the two centuries in which the Crusaders were established there, fixate on essentially the First and the Third Crusade, the Crusade of the Barons and then the Third Crusade, uh, Richard the Lionheart and the Crusade of Kings. And that gives a completely distorted image of the Crusader era because most of the time it was actually strategic stalemate with the Muslims and, and, as, uh, and a sort of uneasy coexistence. And, and, and the main, main thing was trade. It was completely trade. And many of the Crusaders went native in a way. They were floating around in turbans and Arab gear and basically dressed for that part of the world. They, they lost their Western European identity in a sense. But the religious mania remained. The religious mania remained, particularly with the Templars and the Teutons and the Knights of St. John. The, the Teutons arrived a bit later um, during the Third Crusade with Richard and Lanhart, which we'll get on to. Um, and they were less important as a military order because they simply represented um, German knights. So it was a very specific region, whereas the others uh, crossed the whole of Europe. I mean, if you look at London today, you still have the Temple, you still have St. John's Wood. I mean, it just shows the, the reach and the influence of some of those military orders. And 
Well, it's still a hospital in St. John's Wood, isn't it? Yes, and the, and the Templars made so much money out of banking and trade. They had their own fleet of galleys. Uh, the hospitallers, as I said, ran the sugar trade. And they were paid a lot of money by wealthy pilgrims for looking after them. Henry II, when he wanted to mount a crusade, he gave the Templars 30,000 gold marks to pay for it. They basically were his banker. Uh, That ended up being squandered uh, after the Battle of the Horns of Hattin, in which Saladin destroyed the Christian army. Well, we might get into that now because um, the cracks are beginning to show, 1187, and the Horns of Hattin, the Battle of the Horns of Hattin. Yes, well, the great Saladin Saladin, uh, was the Sultan of Cairo, Sultan of Egypt, and also the Sultan of Syria. And he combined the forces and was a very potent threat. He was a brilliant military strategist. They always said at a very early age he'd taken on and defeated a Nubian army. And he was extremely good at strategy, whereas the knights, the crusaders, weren't always that finessed. Uh, Their basic tactic was to charge and see what happened. Something we've covered in uh, previous podcasts. Yes, we have. And he attacked Tiberius, got the crusader army out from the coast, and then destroyed it. And that was an army of 23,000 infantry and about 1,200 knights. He then destroyed the Templars. He had them all executed and the Hospitallers, all the knights of military orders he had executed. And again, we have this image of thousands of knights, but there were actually very few. If you look at the number of Templars out in the Holy Land, there were probably just a few hundred. There 10% of the actual number of Templars. Most Templars were simply clerks, accountants, and treasurers back in Paris and London and other cities. So it's not a huge amount, um, the, the numbers stationed in their forts. And their numbers tended to have been uh, pushed up by renegade or mercenary Muslims, Turkopoles, who worked for them as irregulars. But as actually a force, there were very few of them. Okay. And then we're heading towards the end of the century, 1191, the Third Crusade. Yes, because after King Guy of Jerusalem was defeated at the Horns of Hattin, the true cross, the cross on which Jesus was purportedly crucified, fell into Saladin's hands. Jerusalem was taken. By the time the knights and the forces of the Christians were wiped out of the horns of Hattin, there were only about two knights left in Jerusalem to guard it. So it very rapidly capitulated to Saladin. So he took Jerusalem. He then marched up and down the coast with the captured Templar Grand Master, Gerard de Riedfort, and got a lot of those Templar castles to surrender which was pretty ignominious for a military order like the Templars. But once Saladin had taken Jerusalem, the Crusaders were forced back to the coast. There were a few redoubts like Crack de Chevalier uh, that held out. And those sorts of castles could hold out with just a few hundred people. I mean, you, you, you 
could sit there for years if you wanted to. So what happened was that the kings of Europe thought, we cannot let this stand. We owe it to Christianity to save the holy sites again, to go out there and take on Saladin. And so you get Richard Coeur de Lyon, the King of England, you get Philip of France, you get Duke Leopold of Austria, and you get the Holy Roman Emperor, um, Frederick Barbarossa, heading out there for the Third Crusade. Barbarossa doesn't make it, he drowns on the way, possibly murdered, but the others do. And the person who leads the charge is, of course, Richard the Lionheart. Uh, he loves it. He's a man of action. There's nothing he enjoys more than being in, in the middle of the fight. The first thing he does is go for that crucial spot, Acre, because Saladin has taken Acre and he's now got a Muslim garrison there. So and, it is the idea that if you haven't got Acre, you can't take Jerusalem? Well, Saladin had Jerusalem, but certainly in terms of the Crusaders, what they needed were redoubts on the coast. That's what kept the Crusaders in the game, the fact that for almost 200 years, they had this string of beads, if you like, this string of fortifications along the coast. So it could always be supported uh, by sea, from Venice, from Genoa, from any of the other parts of Europe. And so what, if you had Acre, you had a vantage point from which to leverage your forces, from which you could mount expeditions to take other positions on the coast. And that's exactly what Richard the Lionheart did. He besieged Acre. Saladin tried to get through to save the garrison, but he couldn't. But because the garrison did not surrender, Richard, once he took the city, slaughtered 3,000 or more. Uh, Muslim defenders. He just took them out and he butchered them. And historians had often gone, oh, this is terrible. This isn't the right thing to do. It, it, I'm afraid it was the name of the game during those times. If you didn't surrender, you were fair game. Yeah, that, that was the rule, wasn't it? Basically, you had to open the doors or if you didn't, you're all going to get you'd, you'd, you'd killed be, or sold into slavery. Yes, you'd be slaughtered. And so that's what happened. And Richard couldn't afford, given the size of his army, to guard 3,000 plus defenders. What could he do? He would either release them to Saladin, who and would have to use fight them, them again and, and fight them again, or he'd have to keep them captive and feed them. He didn't want to be in that position. So, what did Richard do after he had captured Acre? Well, he marched his army down the coast towards Jaffa. He did quite a clever thing, and it was basically a tactic that defended his right flank. He marched almost in the sea along the coast so that no one could outflank him on his right flank. Uh, so what happened as he passed Mount Carmel, the forces of Saladin kept on coming through the gaps of the mountains, or rather the hills really, and attacking the left flank. And if you go down that route today, it's very evocative because obviously the topography hasn't changed. And you can imagine those forces coming out to harry the Crusader army. And the ships of his fleet paralleled his march. They were basically his right flank. 
And every army that has marched down that coast has done exactly the same thing. The, the Philistines, 3,000 years before, when they tried to invade Egypt, they did exactly the same. They and had Alexander as well. Yes, they all marched down there. And unfortunately, what happened with the Philistines when they tried to take on Egypt, they had sailing ships and the Egyptians had galleys. So the galleys of Ramses III took on the Philistines and absolutely slaughtered them because the Philistines found there was no wind for their sails. So that, that stopped their invasion of Egypt. But anyway, Richard gets down to Jaffa. He winters there in 1291. He rebuilds Jaffa, and then he forays inland. He goes inland. But this is the great conundrum for the Crusaders throughout the 200 years. Once you go inland, you become incredibly vulnerable to any enemy force coming up the old Via Mare, coming up that coastal road and cutting you off from the sea. Richard couldn't do that. He found, even with the French army, who were sort of mutinous and didn't want to be under his control because by that stage, Philip of France had buggered off uh, because he had fallen out with Richard, as had Duke Leopold of Austria. So Richard was going it alone. There's always that story that he catches a glimpse of Jerusalem and covered his eyes with a shield because he knew he would never take it. And he gets as far as Beit Nuba, an old Roman fort. And yes, I have clambered around those hills trying to find it. <laughs> and he stays there for a while, but realizes that he's not going to take Jerusalem. No, he's also getting messages from England that his brother John is uh, stabbing him in the back, is taxing the people too high, you know, that, that is basically taking over. So Richard, in the end, uh, turns tail and goes back to England. And on the way, he's taken captive by Leopold of Austria and held ransom. And Eleanor of Aquitaine, his mother, has to raise a vast ransom uh, to get him out of captivity. So that's the sad end for Richard of the Third Crusade, the Crusade of Kings. Yeah. As I said right at the beginning, it's the First Crusade, the Crusade of the Nobles, and the Third Crusade, the Crusade of Kings of Richard Leonhardt, that have printed themselves on the minds and the consciousness of people today. That's what we know about. But it, it gives a very false image, really, of what was happening over that time. Because, uh, as I've said, it was mostly strategic stalemate and coexistence. Before we get into the other Crusades, the later Crusades, can we have a little word on the True Cross? Yes, the True Cross is critical as a talisman for crusaders and pilgrims because it was identified in the 320s AD by Helena, later St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, the first truly Christian emperor of Rome. And he had started to build Constantinople, uh, sort of constructed in 330. She went to the Holy Land. She went to Jerusalem and started digging around and started to identify key sites linked to the life and death of Christ, whether it was the church and the nativity near Bethlehem or the church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, that she founded, or certainly part of it, the chapel of St. Helena, which was the first 
sort of setting, really, for Christianity. She identified where Jesus had been crucified on Golgotha. And you have to remember, it wasn't necessarily living memory, but it was narrated or recorded memory that that was the site where the Jews did their public executions on a quarry outside the original walls of Jerusalem. Well, so do you think that she might actually have had some sort of accurate surveying? And it wasn't oh, she started all... digging. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've always thought that is probably the site. I mean, a lot of archaeologists would agree. Most archaeologists, I think, would probably agree that that was the main site for crucifixions during that period. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's certainly on the highest point. It would have been outside the walls. And the Via Dolorosa is the natural course winding round that hill uh, that leads from the Roman barracks up to that point. So she identified it, not only the place where she thought that Jesus had been crucified, but also where he had been buried. She also identified the true cross, the patibulum or the cross span on which Jesus had been crucified. And this becomes the most sacred of relics. And it starts a boom in relic hunting among Christian pilgrims of that period. So everything from the lance of Christ to the nails that were driven through his hands to uh, the shroud of Christ, all these things are picked up. And a lot of them are taken to Constantinople, but the true cross remained in the chapel of St. Helena during that period. And it has a, a, a strange journey over that period because it, it at stages gets captured. At one stage, um, it was captured by the kings of Persia, the Sultan of Persia, and who should get it back but Emperor Heraclius of Constantinople, and he returns it to Jerusalem, walking barefoot in penance in the early 7th century. So it remains there, and then eventually Saladin gets his hands on it, and it's, it's never seen again. Uh, it's reputed that Richard the Lionheart, when he met Saladin, Saladin's brother, who, whom he negotiated with, that Saffadin actually showed him the true cross. But no one really knows. No one really knows what Saladin did with it. It just vanishes from history. So it's always had that place, a bit like the grail, on what might have happened, where it's ended up. Richard was actually given a few bits of wood and was were told that they were from the true cross. Some but, splinters. But those sort of relic hunters and con men were as evident then as I suppose they are today. Yes, it's very tempting, isn't it? Well, yes, and it was a period, as as we've talked about already, of religious fervour you know, that uh, and of different knights. I mean, we didn't mention the knights of St. Lazarus, the leper knights of St. Lazarus, uh, the Cathars of the period who were duelists, who believed in two gods, an evil god and a good god. You know, there were many, many different people. There were people who grazed like oxen in the fields because they wanted to be closer to the beasts because that, that's what they thought human beings were until they were saved by Christ. And all the while the Catholic Church grows in power and wants to really control this situation and bring it under one roof. Yes, which is why there were crusades against the Cathars in the 12th century and why, for example why the Second Crusade in the middle of the 12th century 
um, attacked the Muslims in Lisbon and threw the Muslims out of Portugal. So a lot of the Crusades that arrive actually get diverted and distracted and sent on other missions or fall foul of skullduggery and double-dealing and being paid off. And that's really the story of the, the, the later Crusades. Well, well, why don't we have a little uh, look at some of those anyway? The Fourth Crusade, 1204. Yes, that was really a crusade that was organized by the Venetians. Uh, they paid 85,000 marks. They wanted to get more land. They were promised half the land that any crusaders got. It all went awry because, of course, the Venetians did a deal with the Sultan of Egypt and told him they wouldn't attack Egypt. Uh, and ultimately, it all goes horribly wrong, even though a lot of crusaders are, uh, arrive in an army. They have 50 galleys supporting them from Venice, but they don't end up in the Holy Land. They end up in Constantinople, and they absolutely pillage Constantinople, which is why a lot of the treasures in St. Mark's, Venice, today originally came from Constantinople. So that's just another example of how the Crusades got distracted and diverted and went horribly wrong. So it was easy for, or, or it was an idea that if you wanted to go on, a, on an adventure and maybe make some money and go and do a bit of raiding, if you, could, if you could attach a Crusader banner to it, it would give you that much more Kudos. <laughs> that much more kudos. And yeah, the usual thing. Make it, a, make it a religious matter. Yes, when in fact it's just thuggery in the same way that people today who commit acts of terror are just low-grade, low-life, inadequate individuals, but they feel better about themselves when they take on jihad. And so nothing has changed in human nature. It is just the way it is. And by that stage, kings and noblemen don't want to invest the blood and treasure in crusade. They know that the stalemate is there. They know that they don't have the power to take on whichever Muslim dynasty is running that area of the world at that stage. Frankly, if Richard Coeur de Lyon can do it, neither could they. So it becomes more of a commercial venture and land grab and pillage after that. Yes. Uh, so this uh, mania, uh, religious mania, it continues there. And it, there's an extraordinary crusade in 1212. Yes, the Children's Crusade, uh, which I covered in Pilgrim, actually. And it was very moving writing it. And far more moving than when I wrote uh, Penance, which was about the Third Crusade, the Richard the Lionheart Crusade. There are so many legends about the Children's Crusade, but it's pretty clear that up to 70,000 children left Europe for the Holy Land, 40,000 from France, 30,000 from the Rhineland. And it had such a searing impact on the psyche of Europe that it entered folklore as the Pied Piper of Hamelin, the idea that the children vanished and never came back. If you measure the distance from Cologne, where so many of the Rhineland children turned up to gather and pray and take the cross before they started their march. The distance between Cologne and Genoa, where they were heading for initially, is about 600 miles. And they did it in about three months. So you're talking eight miles a day if, they, if you give them one day's rest a week. 
And that's for children between 8 and 14, essentially, with inadequate clothing, inadequate food, inadequate shelter. It explains why so many died, so many fell out. The ones that actually made it across the Alps got to Genoa. They thought that the sea would part, like Moses and the Red Sea, and they would walk to the Holy Land. That's how naive they were. Uh, Whose idea was it? Well, what happened is that because of the religious fervor of the period, people started looking at the Third Crusade, at the Crusade of Richard the Lionheart, 1191, and at the 1204 abortive raid that ended up in Constantinople. And child preachers like Nicholas and Peter were going around the Rhineland and France saying, look, the adults have failed. Only the pure at heart, only the children can do it. And then the Pope, Sixtus V, gave a plenary indulgence, said to the adults of Europe, well, if you send your children on the crusade, they can win you an indulgence that will get you to heaven. So all these parents were offloading their children to go on the crusade. So there was this huge impetus for the the children to head out on this journey. And it was a catastrophe. Some made it to Rome to meet the Pope. Some got aboard ships. The ones that got on board ships, they were never seen again because essentially what happened, they were sold into slavery and they ended up in the slave markets of Cairo and Damascus. So it's a piteous story. It's it's absolutely tragic. And I, there were moments when I was writing Pilgrim, I just had my head in my hands. <laughs> it's just, it's so sad. It's so tragic. Yeah. And it's always said that 30 years later, one adult reappeared and said, this is what happened and told the story. But it certainly made a huge impact, given that they started at the Shrine of the Three Kings, the Shrine of the Magi in Cologne. With so much hope, it all went tragically wrong. But it, it, it showed how crusade was never going to work of any kind by that stage. They were never, ever going to retake the Holy Land. And later in the 13th century, yes, there was the 6th and 7th Crusades, and they got back Jerusalem between 1229 and 1244. But you're talking 15 years, and it was just a deal, and it meant nothing, and no one was interested. And by the end of the 13th century, no one wanted to go on crusade anymore. It just ran out of steam, just ran out of impetus those crusaders who are left in the Holy Land, a bit like the Knights of St. John on Malta years later in 1565 when the Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, attacked them. No one was interested anymore. They, it it ju- had just had its day. Yeah. So uh, the Christians and the Muslim, by then, Outremer, they were in a sort of strategic stalemate. There was a strategic stalemate, except that in the 1220s, the Mameluk Sultan Baybars took over and he gave a new impulse to the Muslims taking over Crusader land. And he basically marched his army up and down and started taking Crusader kingdoms. He took Antioch, butchered everyone, slit the throats of priests in their churches, sold any survivors into slavery. He took Crack de Chevalier, he took Caesarea, He took Ashkelon. He took all these old crusader places. There was no going back from that point. You then get uh, the 
Sultan Kalawun, who in 1289 did what Baybars had given up on. He attacked Tripoli. Uh, so the Halka spearheads of Sultan Kalawun broke in to Tripoli in 1289. And he had waited until King Bermond of Tripoli had died, until the Genoese and the Venetians had fallen out and the Genoese had sailed off. That's what the Mamluks did. They waited until the Crusaders were fighting amongst each other and then moved in. It was a classic tactic. You wait until your enemy undermines itself and then you make your move. So he got in there, butchered everyone. Uh, there were a few survivors, swam out or took skiffs and rode out to a small outcrop of rock, uh, St. Thomas Island, 100 yards offshore. And the Muslim cavalry simply swim out with their horses and massacre everyone there. So there was a lot of blood spill. And that set the scene for what happened two years later at Acre. And then in 1290, the Italians arrive at Acre. Yes, and they certainly weren't knights. They were, again, peasants who were fired up, full of fervor, and thought that they would come on crusade. And they weren't welcome because, as we've mentioned already, most people wanted quiet lives. Most people wanted to trade. They knew that the situation with the Mamluks was tricky. They knew that the Mamluks had taken a lot of their towns and they just wanted to cling on. And again, there was a lot of commotion in Acre. The Italians went out and they started slaughtering the Muslim traders who were in the Fonda or out in their villages on the plains beyond. And that gave the new sultan who'd taken over from Kalawun, a man called Al-Ashraf or Kamil, he decided to wipe the crusaders send the Franks packing once and for all. And so he raised his army in Egypt. He called on his army from Damascus. They converged on Acre in 1291. There was no stopping him. By that stage, the Venetians had fallen out with the Genoese and sped off in their galleys. Quite a lot of people were fleeing uh, along with them. And so what was left was the rump of Acre and the military orders and the knights who were willing to make a last stand. This vast army appeared outside the walls with their mangonels, with their trebuchets, with what they called their black oxen catapults and start laying siege. It's very bloody. It lasts for several weeks, but eventually the Mamluks prevail and they break through, just as they had done at Tripoli. And the end is nigh. There are a few big characters, which we've actually mentioned before, like Roger de Flor, the chancellor and adventurer who blackmailed the wealthy women of Acre uh, to get them spaces on a commandeer Templar galley. And so he whisks them away to safety. Many flee, but many can't. Uh, like the Titanic, there, there aren't enough lifeboats. There's nowhere for them to go. They're slaughtered and the sultan either butchers or enslaves anyone he finds and takes whatever treasure he can find. And this is another extract from Jamie's book, Perdition, 
which describes this moment. They're breaking down the door. Greet them well, my brothers. Inside the hospitaler compound, a gaggle of knights readied for the end. They were fortunate to have survived so long, had only sought refuge as last resort, and when the environs were in enemy hands. None expected to outlive the day. Now the foe was come for them. Wood cracked, and hinges buckled to each strike of a battering ram, and beyond the enclave walls, flame cast its eerie light, and cries and screams billowed. The Knights of St. John of Jerusalem, symbolic of Christian resolve, were a priority for the Mameluk. From the small and waiting group, the words of a psalm reverberated calm, as though sung in the peaceful solitude of a chapel. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. And confident they were. It mattered not that they would die, for obedience and sacrifice were to be celebrated. The inhabitants of Acre might run screeching in undignified pandemonium to be hunted and quartered as frightened beasts. In the square formed by the four great buildings of the order, a separate narrative unfurled. Steady, my brothers. Let every one of your blows be true. Swords and battle axes were raised. Some of the knights leant on hastily fashioned crutches, while others sat on stools and pews arranged for the occasion. Not all the wounded had accepted places aboard a departing galley. For them, it was more honourable to face the demons at the gate. No doubt the Templars and Teutons would be similarly engaged. No doubt there were countless surrounded pockets resisting with aplomb. Composed, they watched the splinters fly and the last bolt give. Perhaps the magnitude of the instant forced the Saracens to pause. Then they were through. The initial wave staggered and dropped to the aimed impact of crossbow quarrels and the next took its place. More were behind, javelins and arrows pelted into the knights, and the angry flood engulfed them. They fought as they had vowed and intended, answering the onslaught with frenzied commitment. It took some time to subdue them. Christ was with them, even as they chanted and tore into the multitude, even as they were hewn apart and trampled. So does that mean at this point, really, that that's it? Crusades are over, nobody's left in the Holy Land from the European side? Well, he then follows up this attack on Acre by marching up the coast. He takes Tyre, Sidon, Beirut, and that really is the end of the Crusades. The Templars cling on for another 12 years to this tiny little island a couple of miles off Tartus, off Tortosa. And there's no point for them being there because there's no trade anymore with the Holy Land. There's no crusade anymore. They're not guarding pilgrims. And so if they had lost their raison d'etre when Saladin took Jerusalem and the crusaders were forced back to the sea, then they had really lost their reason to survive. And even though they survived there on Ruad, as it was called then, Arwad today, they clung on for 12 years until 1303. Then another decade later, they were wiped out by greedy King of France and the Pope. 
and declared they were, heretics. They were declared heretics. They were accused of everything from witchcraft to sodomy to worshipping the god Baphomet. And basically, it was power grab, land grab, a treasure grab by the King of France and the papacy. Tied to a stake and set fire to. Yes. Uh, the, the hospitalists survived. Yeah, they did slightly better, didn't they? They did. They headed off for Rhodes, where they established themselves. The king of Jerusalem uh, ended up going from Acre, surviving, going to Cyprus, where his dynasty uh, ruled there for several centuries onwards until they were thrown out by the Ottomans. The hospitalers in Rhodes stayed there till 1522 until the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent attacked, besieged them, and eventually allowed the hospitalers to leave Rhodes, which was a foolish mistake because years later in 1565, when Suleiman was an old man by that stage, he had to attack the hospitaller knights again on Malta, which we've gone through in our podcast about the great siege of Malta of 1565. So that's it. Templars dealt with declared heretics and completely obliterated hospitalers off to Rhodes, then off to Malta eventually. And the, the Sultan has captured everything along the coast. Yes, and the Teutonic Knights pushed out of the Holy Land as well. But of course, their Teutonic cross, their Knight's cross, of course, reappears later on as the Iron Cross, as the symbol on the side of German aircraft in the Great War. That Teutonic ideal was then, of course, picked up by the Nazis, resurrected and rebranded. So their influence, in a way, survived and reached into the 20th century. Brilliant. Well, Jamie, I think you've covered the Crusades from one end to the other, but we love to have a PS at the end of these little chats. So what have you got for us today? Yes, rather an interesting postscript because you wind on 500 years and you get to Napoleon. Napoleon sends his forces to Egypt in 1798. On the way, they raid Malta. What do they pick up on Malta? All the relics and treasures of the Hospitaller Knights of St. John, who were pushed out of Acre in 1291. Now, that fleet sails on to Egypt. In 1798, Nelson turns up, he attacks the fleet and destroys it at the Battle of Abu Kir Bay, the Battle of the Nile, famous Battle of the Nile. And during that battle, there's a ship that blows up, and that is the Lorient, the flagship of the French Navy. And it's Lorient that is carrying the relics of the Hospitallers. So those relics have made a long journey and ended up back towards the Holy Land. And they're probably rotting and rusting or gone at the bottom of the Nile. But what happened when the fleet was attacked and taken out of action was that Napoleon was stuck in Egypt. So he decided to make the best of a bad job. And he thinks, right, I'm not going to take on the British in India anymore. I'm not going to take on their influence in these parts. So he thinks, what I'll do is march my army up the coast 
of Palestine and take Constantinople. And that's what he does. He marches his army north. But what is standing in his way? Acre. Who is defending Acre? But an insane Turkish governor called the Butcher, um, Jeza Pasha, who has a reputation for amputating, castrating. He has dinner with severed heads around him in alcoves. He's a nasty bit of work. But alongside him is a fascinating character, Sir Sidney Smith. I've always believed that he is actually the blueprint for the Scarlet Pimpernel. Uh, he was a British spy and naval officer. He had been in the Bastille, um, arrested by the Napoleonic authorities for trying to kill Napoleon with royalists. He got out of that jail by a ruse. Two officers turned up pretending to be Napoleon's men. They get him in a carriage, say they're transferring him to another prison. A chase is given. Uh, the wheel axle of the carriage breaks. Uh, and Sidney Smith vanishes by throwing gold coins into the crowd, who then block the path of his pursuers. <laughs> so he gets out. A few years later, he's out at Acre. He's arrived by a frigate. He is there to block Napoleon's path and thwart his ambitions with his army. There's an incredible battle, great siege. The walls are breached, just as they were in 1291. And Sidney Smith leads the forays out to push back Napoleon's forces. All the towers that were there in the 1291 siege, the Barbican, the King Henry Tower, the Accursed Tower, they're still there. It's extraordinary that all those years later, Acre is again the center of this action. But what happens is that Sidney Smith forces Napoleon's army back and Napoleon's forces can't take Acre. So Napoleon has to turn around and march back to Egypt, killing his wounded on the way. Sidney Smith is actually the only British commander to have defeated Napoleon in battle for the next 16 years until the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo. And oddly enough, um, the Duke of Wellington cannot stand Sidney Smith. Uh, Sidney Smith is a typical Regency dandy and fop, floats around in turbans and flowing robes, just like those crusaders did uh, several hundred years before. But he is an extraordinary character. He put Acre at the epicenter of world events. A great sounding character. We might even have to do a piece on him for our, our future podcast, Bloody Violent People. Whether he's good, bad or ugly, I'm not sure, but we'll, uh, we'll find out when we do that. However, as we have seen, that part of the world has been a crucible of world events and has witnessed some extraordinary turns and twists of history. The Crusader presence lasted just under 200 years, and yet, as we've seen from their campaigning and presence in the Holy Land, it's created shockwaves that have reached to the present day. In truth, trade and coexistence marked most of the 200 years, but what we remember is that single word, crusade. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, 
to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.